Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. Today I'm joined by Kane Bacigalupi, Development Director from our San Francisco office. Thanks so much for joining us today, Kane. Hello, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. So, yes, you are the Development Director in our San Francisco office. You are the Brand only- new. Yes. How long ago did you join? I think it was seven weeks ago. Seven weeks, which was a good time because you happen to be here now in Boston joining us for the Summer Summit. Yeah. So that was a perfect time. You got in just before the fun started. Yeah, and actually a lot of people have just join San Francisco, and they are all here having a party. Yep. And, so, you know, an educational party. An edu- the best kind of party. Yeah. <laughs> the geekiest uh, kind of party ever. So this will be interesting to see what the recording sounds like, because as we go on through the afternoon here, people are going to show up around us, around the recording studio, which are, we're in right now, and uh, Have start less to, educational to party. parties. Yeah, turn from educational dial-up to party. So uh, <laughs> if some sounds come through, listeners, that's what that is. But uh, we wanted to get in a recording, particularly while you were here in the office, because I think it's always... It's nice to actually have the, the face-to-face. Better audio, and, yeah. Yeah, all of that. Yeah, we've got our, our fancy studio here. We've got the weird uh, styrofoam things on the wall that, I don't think they're styrofoam, but just foam things on the wall that make it even better. They're color-coordinated? Yes, they're themed to, the blue is for the weekly iteration from Upcase, and the red is giant robots-esque themes. So those are the red and the uh-huh. blue, respectively. Uh-huh. Tom's branding game is on point. But yeah, let's dig into some technical topics, talk about some things. Cool. So one thing that I wanted to ask you about is you spent some time working at 18F. I did. I was there for like, uh, I would say about 15 months. And after I left there, I went to California State. And they were trying to get together some digital service design, um, better software practices. And so combined, I think it was like three years in government. And it was super educational. Uh-huh. There are so many incredible mission-driven people on all levels of mm-hmm. government and uh Government is just a weird environment incentive-wise for getting anything done. Yep. So I'm vaguely familiar with 18F, but can you talk a little bit about what it is as an organization and then what particularly you were doing within it? Because yeah. I think it's it's super yeah. interesting. So 18F started in the same way that another organization within the federal government did. And that other one is a little bit better associated with healthcare.gov and the kind of recovery of that uh, terrible government disaster. Yeah, but that, 18, whole, that little thing that happened. That little thing, yeah. yeah. Um, but 18F was actually like in with the kind of problem <laughs> space that healthcare.gov created as well at the same time. And so USDS is under the president, pretty directly under the president, and have been for a long time firefighters, although I think they're switching to a different model now. Hmm. And so things going wrong, like healthcare.gov, they rush in and kind of top down help uh, manage it. And then 18F had a different business model. And so they are inside the GSA, the General Service Administration, and they have a business strategy where every person is cost recoverable. And that's different from most areas of of government. Mostly in government, you know, like it's all outgoing and the service is is the benefit. Mm -hmm. But this is a case where the General Service Administration serves other areas of government. And so one of the things that they do is buildings. But this is another area, and it's largely a software consulting business inside the government. Software's like digital buildings, in a manner of speaking. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, it's cost recoverable. and And the other thing they do is acquisitions, which is like... When I got into government, I was like, acquisitions, that sounds like incredibly boring, buying things. Mm-hmm. With like software acquisitions in this case? Everything acquisitions. Okay. Yeah, they help a lot with software acquisitions, but there's like a whole, you know, it seems like every problem in government falls down to acquisitions. And hmm. the amazing 
rigor that is required for that and right. how it separates the people internally and the end user from any benefit. Mm -hmm. So it's like we've had corruption in the past, like add laws, policy, practice yep. uh, in order to prevent that. And all that stuff ends up uh, moving us farther away from real solution. Your work with 18F then, were you acting, was your group acting as a like a consulting organization yeah. within the government? Yeah. Okay. And I was with a group called Strategy. And there were design strategists, there were product strategists, there were um, business strategists, and I was an engineering strategist. Mm -hmm. Like, I keep telling myself that I'm just an engineer, but I keep doing product. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, what I mostly did for nine months of my time there was work with the 2020 census. What sort of work specifically? So this? at the time, they were doing a big enterprise endeavor, like, because every 10 years, like, it's the perfect waterfall disaster, right? Oh, like, yeah. we've got 10 As years you said to it, figure I heard that 2020, out. And I was like, right, so when was, how far back was, it? oh, yeah. wait, that's the future. Okay, yeah. so you're talking about a thing that hasn't happened yet. This it is planning and orchestrating. And so, yeah. yeah. So in 2015, which is, you know, when I was at 18F, like, they were like, oh, we've got to get serious because mm -hmm. by 2018, this year, it's got to be nailed down in stone. Like, that's the way it works. Nailed and down of course, in stone, which is not how software works, in my understanding, <laughs> no. ever. No, but that's how it works in government. Mm -hmm. It actually, this is a crazy thing. It takes two years to deploy even a static web application because of security theater. Many, many checkboxes, many layers of compliance and making sure. Hmm. And you don't have to actually produce a secure website, but you have to go through that <laughs> process. Enough, that's not the outcome. Yeah, you just have to have all the, the side effects and the artifacts. Uh, yeah. Documentation up the wazoo. And then you have plausible deniability because you followed all the rules. And so if things go wrong... Well, of course, that's a bad outcome, but mm -hmm. you don't get moved to Siberia, which right. is the equivalent of being fired inside the government. <laughs> Do you mean literally moved to Siberia? <laughs> I like that. I don't know. That's complicated now. So <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. might be complicated. <laughs> government Siberia. Yeah, yeah, government Siberia. Yeah. I've heard of it. So you enjoyed the time you, you were talking about? Um, it was super challenging. Yeah. And I didn't realize like how many compromises I was making, you know, just mm. kind of like, well, it, this is the best possible outcome, mm -hmm. but let's try for this. Okay, that didn't worry. Let's try for this. And like in the end, I was really looking for really minor achievements. Yeah, and small so, wins where you could find them and collect them. And yeah. At a minimum, I imagine that battle hardened you for uh, coming into the world of consulting with ThoughtBot. <laughs> and everywhere else. You know, gone. like I was a consultant before, which is mm -hmm. why I was like kind of ideally positioned for government stuff. And so it's more like back to a saner yeah. kind of space where it's like, you know, like ThoughtBot and the branding around ThoughtBot really is a protection, right? Like we in sales may talk about like, oh, this is our practice. But ultimately, if somebody doesn't want any testing, you know, in their development world, yep. like they're not a customer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we can fire customers. It's very rare, yeah. but it is a thing that comes up, uh, whereas I imagine that was harder to do, if not impossible, in the 18F situation. It was, but even more than firing, you can choose not to take somebody on or mm -hmm. choose not to pursue the Yeah, the ideally sale. the preemptive, proactive solution as opposed to the reactive. Yeah, like, let's end there's this a qualification and, step, and it's yeah. like, do we work together? Are we trying to do the same things? Mm -hmm. And the internal contract process was so fraught that that was not a thing. Although I got to say, I loved the census people, hmm. all the census people. And the thing that I can tell you that can give you like just a ton of hope <laughs> is that there are two stellar, like probably the best development teams I've worked with ever 
teams inside of census that are building homegrown without any product like they're handed like you know like 300 pages of like word document that makes no sense (laughs) and making software out of it and caring more about security and best practices and modern technologies than a lot of people that i see in industry that is surprising and heartening it is unfortunately i was not able to convince the leadership that that was the best solution. So they've been put on the shelf and maybe they're coming back and who knows what's gonna happen. Mm. Um, They went with a $2 billion contract of software that's more or less uh, like Salesforce, you know, drag and drop software. Right. Not gonna work. Yep. (laughs) And that's becoming a reality as 2018 has arrived and it's still not stone. Yep. Yep. Well, that's all complicated, but... uh, (laughs) That is government software. I mean, there's so much good work to do, and there's a ton of dedicated people trying to do it Mm -hmm. against all odds. That was the amazing thing about those sets of developers is, like, the process of of developing. This is what it was. They go into their desk. There's a Windows machine. It's an old Windows machine. On the Windows machine, they open up a Windows virtual machine. Sure. Uh huh. They have. We had a lot of resources, so let's <laughs> shave that down a little. <laughs> well, it's a security thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you, we're not oh, going to let you have access inside the VM. Yep. And so then they installed Putty, except mm-hmm. that there's a security sweeper that would come through and take that off. So they had to rename it to Purdy. I'm serious. Yep. Yeah, I bet. I yeah. believe everything that you're saying. <laughs> and then they SSH into the data center and use that as their development machine for a web application. Just running. Or VI, or something yeah. on there, yeah. VI. VI specifically? Yep. Not even the improved form? My goodness. I know. That sounds rough. It's That's super not, rough. Uh, that would not be my preferred way to develop a web application, but... Uh, but they did it. Yeah. And they did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Against all odds. Yeah. Get it done. Node, it had Angular on the front end, and this was, you know, 2015, so that was, like, more of a, a choice, like, the mm-hmm. right choice to make, and... They were using like a good CSS library to just kind of make things look better, look better than they had mm-hmm. in, in government, like with some interaction pattern. It was, they did a good job with mm. very little help and, in fact, a fair amount of skepticism. <laughs> An uphill battle that they, they yeah. were able to get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds like a whole adventure. And so now after that, you went on to... California the, State. California State. Yeah, and they were thinking... That feels like a different form of government. You would think so, but but, you know, California is like the sixth largest Mm -hmm. economy in the world. So they are also quite big. They have less bureaucracy, but they're still just the same kind of fear-based incentives, Mm -hmm. you know, where changing things is a greater risk than leaving things as they are. And that happens all over government. Which is interesting to contrast that with Oppot's strong opinions held loosely and... uh, you know, we believe there's a good way to build software, but we're always searching for the better way and changing things and yeah. changing the tools that we're using in the process and the approach. And it's a pretty stark contrast, I'd say. <laughs> it's super different. Yeah. It's so great to be back in this world of movement and exploration. You know, for a while I was a mechanical engineer and I got to work on a really cool project. I was super lucky. I worked on the biggest particle accelerator in the world, right? Like, how is that not glamorous? That's, yes, that's top tier right there. And it was so slow. (laughs) (laughs) And when I was done with that, I was happy to go back to building software. Hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's, uh, there's something about like creating something from nothing that's fabulous, but creating something from nothing quickly. And these products of the imagination, ah, 
software development. It is awesome. My origin story is also as a mechanical engineer, and I left essentially for the, I actually really enjoyed my work and there are aspects of it, the physicality that I still miss to a certain degree. Yeah. But there's something just so interesting and engaging and almost addictive about like I go home on the weekend, I have an idea, I open my computer, I smack the keys a bunch and then it's real. <laughs> it's actually on the internet. It actually exists. Like I, I remember the first time I got a web app onto the internet and I could go from a separate computer, type in a URL and see the thing that I had made. And I was like, oh, Okay, this is a whole thing, right? <laughs> I, I remember actually getting a little bit emotional, and I was like, "That seems like an odd response," but here we are. Uh, <laughs> but that ability to make without a purchasing team and a requirements and management and all of the things, like, nope, I can and just go and do it. And just manufacturing. Like, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is, like, I was working on the perfect thing, and so the yeah. manufacturing people were in another room, right? You know, it wasn't a long procurement process or anything like that. Relatively but it was still yeah. so slow. I mean, like, to take apart the Atlas particle accelerator, let's say they blow a fuse, mm-hmm. which is unlikely. But to take it apart takes two months. Put it back together again, two months. Don't blow the fuse then. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just make the fuses blow. Pr- no, that's not how fuses work. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. But yeah, it sounds like we have similar views on uh, what brought us to this world and, and what keeps us here. Actually, speaking of similar views, there is a tweet that you put out into the world that uh, I thought was really interesting and perhaps would be a good conversation bit here. So reading now, most programmers think the intellectual puzzles are the interesting parts of their work, but I keep enjoying the refactoring and design process around making simple interfaces that change easily. Perfect I'm example. In. This is a, this is Twitter <laughs> at its best. This is a nice refined. You were constrained to those 140 characters, and you use them. It might have been 280. I don't know, but I think but, I uh, had 280 and used less than I. Oh, yeah. <laughs> challenge mode. <laughs> um, I really like the premise of this, though, and the idea that there's so much focus on making something work. And I see a lot of pull requests that, that come in on different projects, and it's like, all right, here it is. It does the thing. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but it's very hard to read. It doesn't say what it does. Yeah. It tells the machine what to do, but it doesn't tell me, the yep. reader, what that yeah. thing does. Well, I think that you know one of the things I love about ThoughtBot is like we don't just talk about testing. We talk about test-driven development mm-hmm. as a like mandate for projects and. The thing about test-driven development is you're starting with the interface and moving backwards to the implementation. And that's a very cool way of creating something that's easy to use and super Mm -hmm. testable. And if it's easy to use and testable, it's very composable. Like Mm -hmm. you can rearrange like where the authentication happens because you just pull it out of the front and put it in the back or, you know. But that tweet came about when I was working with somebody who was just obsessed with like, but what's this difference algorithm going to look like? And I'm like, who cares? Like, yep. difference algorithms have been solved, right? As like, long as it's hidden in a module called difference algorithm <laughs> and we can change it in the future, I honestly don't care. It yeah. could be picks the first one to start because then we have code and then it works and then we can iterate and put it in front of people. Yep. Thing.diff. Yep. You know, <laughs> that's all I care about. Yep. <laughs> what it does, we can just write some tests and change it over and over again. But I think that people that are really hardcore engineering people think that's the important part. Yes. And I disagree. I think that that's a solved problem. Mm-hmm. It's more of the plumbing and the connecting of the pieces. And granted, we're constantly standing on the shoulders of yeah. so many different projects and just combining those pieces. Like Rails, it turns out it gives you a lot. Yeah, There's a lot of does. stuff there, so you it don't does. have to write that anymore. And you can focus on the product and really have that be the, the core yeah. idea. Yeah. 
But even um, beyond the kind of product level, like the interfaces of all your little classes and modules mm -hmm. and things, like that's the kind of more interesting part. Like I had a conversation with Sarah May once where she was like, I don't even like doing Rails new. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> until six months, I'm not interested in the project. Mm -hmm. And there's like a kind of truth to that because like until then, like all your assumptions are kind of not validated and the product hasn't shifted away from the code. Mm -hmm. Like all those assumptions that you made about like how things are gonna work haven't like diverged from how people are actually using it mm -hmm. and how the business people are using it. But at, like at that six month point, there starts to be this tension and this buildup of debt and weirdness and then yep. The question is, what do you do with that? And how do you pay down the chaos that keeps coming? How do you pay down the chaos? Yeah, I find myself, the further along I go in all of this, the thing that attracts me is the ability to change. And like yeah. I've been spending a lot of time with strong type systems. Because the idea of this mm. compiler that's watching over my shoulder and checking my math yeah. and just making sure that like, does the equation still balance? I don't want to do that. I want to think at the higher level. I want to think about the words and the human stuff. Yeah. And then let the computer, which is good at the math stuff, do the math stuff and keep me honest and aid me in that refactoring. That's interesting. Like, I think I was writing my Ruby and JavaScript as though it was statically typed. Like, it always returned the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like a null pattern object instead of, like, nil or undefined. Yep. And so... I've been doing more compiled code in the last like couple of years and I haven't I haven't seen any difference in the way that I'm coding or any real benefit. What sort of compiled languages are you working in? I have been working in Java and Elixir. I mean Java not not here but Elixir yep. here and and Java and other stuff. I also like did a little bit of work on COBOL. <laughs> Okay, sure. You know, yeah. government, you can't avoid it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you I could. Think I've been lucky in that my experience with compilers is largely other languages. So none of those. Yeah. But the ones that I have worked with are Scala, Haskell, and TypeScript specifically. Mm -hmm. And each of them have a strong type system as part of it, as well as the whole compilation process. Whereas my understanding, and I've, I've done very little Java, but I've seen it. And I think this may also be more of a historical thing, but you're sort of fighting the compiler. You're like, it's not, no one would way. think of the Java compiler as their friend. Nope. Whereas in each of the languages that I've worked with, the compiler is absolutely, oh, and Elm is actually the other one. Elm being the friendliest of the friends. Interesting. Um, Elm particularly writes you a little book. It's like, hey friend, how's it going? So the math doesn't quite line up. Let me talk to you about it. Uh, <laughs> you wrote this, but actually the record doesn't have that. They do have this other one though that's really close. I think you mean that. And it's actually written with a personification and, and little things like that. The other three are a little more scientific, terse. if you will, a little <laughs> more terse, a little less personality. But they all feel like they're almost like a pair. So it's someone watching over your shoulder and being like, oh, you missed that right over there. You should go check on that. And it's it's very, very helpful and sort of guides me mm. in refactorings. And then I find myself coming back to Ruby and I'm like, I love you, Ruby. The interfaces and the classes that I can build in Ruby still are the most... Uh, expressive expressive and like to borrow dhh parlance it's beautiful i like yeah. the look of the code and the, the yeah. feel of it but it's actually very odd for me that i've been spending a lot of time in javascript world right now and the power of eslint or similar static analysis tools is sort of impressive and the that idea of someone watching over my shoulder and being like oh that's not defined yet you can't use it I'm, i'll go back to a rails app and rubocop is there trying its hardest but rubocop's like i I'm not sure. Anything can be anything in this yeah. world. So good luck. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. rough. I can't imagine doing a Rails app without very high test coverage. 
Yeah. But as I go out into other, er like the idea of it in other languages, still want tests because I think they're incredibly important, but they are not the only thing keeping me safe. Got it. And I find that very interesting. Yeah. And maybe it's the languages, but I've been mm -hmm. just finding that the compiler has mostly been helping me with typos that mm -hmm. tests would have caught and that I'm still writing the same amount of tests. Mm -hmm. And that maybe even the compiled nature of the code is making it harder to test at a kind of mocked out unit level. Mm -hmm. And so I'm ending up with more expensive and more brittle tests. Yeah, it's, it's all a trade-off. And for me, these are all somewhat new adventures that I'm going on. But I definitely resonate with building small objects and the, the yeah. sort of pleasure in that. And Ruby absolutely stands out in that. Yeah. Ruby's, it's a, it's a wonderful little language. There is a conversation that I was having with someone earlier this week about the uniform access principle. I don't know that one. Uh, oh, I'm going to butcher this now. Okay. Uh, here go. we go. I'll put the <laughs> Wikipedia article in the show notes so that people can learn the real thing. But my understanding of it is we want to write our code in such a way that the nature of the data interaction is hidden. That's basically an implementation detail. Mm -hmm. So a specific example of this would be instead of within a class directly referencing instance variables, we use adder reader, yep, which yep. essentially defines a method for us, and then we're interacting with a method. But if we consistently do this, then everywhere throughout our code, everything is the same. It's all method calls. There's yeah. no, well, in this case, I'm actually directly accessing a variable that I know to exist. It's I'm calling a method. And so if later we want to change the implementation of that method to memoize or cache the value or to actually change what the underlying stored data is, and now we're reading a permutation of that data rather than you know the original shape that it was in, we allow ourselves that freedom by having this uniform access. And I think, again, this is an area where Ruby absolutely shines, both in the, the adder reader and those sort of things, but also the optional parens, which is a thing that yeah. I hear a lot of people decry about Ruby, but I'm a fan of it for that reason. It allows you to code in that way and hide the details, hide the messy bits, mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. tell a little story with your code, which I think that's the game. I'm pretty sure that's the game. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the game. I, I really appreciate the optional parens when there's no arguments. And for that same reason, like, what am I dealing with? Is it a variable? Is it a, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter. Does not matter. And as such, we should hide that messy yeah. detail from ourselves. But, you know, it's funny that a lot of other languages believe pretty strongly that that's the need to use parentheses or the recommendation that you do is a, is a feature mm -hmm. and that you should know the difference between, you know, kind of like an attribute and a method call. I find that interesting because like Ruby seems to be designed in the opposite way and there is this this whole idea around the thing and every time I code in that way I feel like the code is better. When, yeah. Whenever I can hide implementation details, I almost always feel better about that. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, just chase them down, <laughs> find them, hide them in the messy corners. I've noticed a pattern in a lot of the code that I've been writing with single class methods as the entry point, lots of like service objects that I'm writing. Mm -hmm. And then the service that class method just delegates to initialize and then calls the same instance method. Yeah. Uh, and it's I have done that a fair amount too. And it is pretty powerful. The interesting thing, this is one of those cases where the tests really like that, because then it's very easy to mock or stub out like, okay, and I, I know I'm going to collaborate with this other class and it's got this nice class method that that's the only that's the interface entirely. Yeah. And so it's very easy to say, allow that object to receive this message and return me this value. But I do wonder if, if that's the test informing too much. I still like it in the code, too. So I think it's good overall. But Well, I always, uh, for tests, I just think about things in terms of, like, you want lots and lots of unit tests, and that means you're mocking out some element of the world. Mm -hmm. 
But if you don't have like an integration test or, you know, all the way up on the top of that, you mm-hmm. know, testing pyramid, the acceptance tests, then you have no idea if the plumbing is connected yep. correctly. And so you need some amount of that. Like this group of objects works together in this way and I and I've proven it by like running through it. The like testing pyramid, I always look at it, I'm like, I feel like it's a little small on the top. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, those are the tests that really tell me if I'm safe to deploy to production. No, like not for me. Like I, I'm totally with that. But you have to like totally buff out like yes. those that lower level. Like every time you have an if statement, mm-hmm. you just like fluff up your you know <laughs> universe of of unit testing yep. and go crazy, right? Every bit of logic like down there tested, and mm-hmm. then I've had it be like enough that yep. I just mostly don't end up with bugs. I actually, I find that I really enjoy the process, like test-driven development at the unit level is a very positive experience in my mind. And that took a while to get to. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of, we talk about test-driven development, there's judgment and there's sort of uh, judgment feels like the best word that I'm going to come up with here. Uh, you should be doing this. And if you are not doing this and you are bad and wrong, but yep, for yep. being honest, it's hard. It is hard. You have to know that much better what you're doing in order to be able to test yeah. drive it. And it's one of the things I end up working with junior folks a lot on that and going through the process and showing like, okay, so now we have an implementation, but guess what? We can throw it away and we can write it again. And I think a lot of people would look at that and say that that's crazy, but I really love the methodical practice nature yeah. of that. Like there's a lot of thinking that happens. And then when code needs to enter my system, the way that that happens is through the workflow of TDD and through the tiny little cycles and the... I was actually just reading a blog post last night that was excellent, but it was talking about a lot of the niceties of test room development. Mm. And he referenced the idea of calling your shot. So like in a a sports sort of context, calling your shot, seeing where it's going to go, the same sort of thing in testing. Okay, I've written the test. I'm going to run it. It's going to fail. And it's going to fail for this reason. And so not even necessarily saying it out loud, but saying it, running the test, and immediately getting feedback on a particular thing that you have said to be true in your head. Yep. I absolutely love that idea. I find myself doing that a lot with junior developers. I'll be like, all right, what do you think is going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. Run the test. <laughs> it's like, no, no, no. We, we have to decide beforehand because we have to know if we're right. We have to know if our model of the world is correct. And yeah, I, I absolutely love that idea and that phrase now. I'm glad that I have a phrase for this thing because it's Calling something that i thought about. Yeah. That happens in pool too, right? Yep. Where you you know choose like, it's going to go in that hole. Yep. And yeah. when you do it, you're all the better. In fact, I think it's like required. I don't know. I played I with a lot required. of different variations of pool rules, and most of the times, like, I don't know, went in, that seemed yeah, good, but, I but I'm not a professional pool, pool player. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I've been doing that with, like, group of people that's never done, when they hear test-driven development, they mean, like, oh, we got to do more testing. Yes. And so, like, slowing everybody down, like, or one-on-one people in pairs down and just being like, no, no, no don't write that code mm-hmm. yet. We don't have a test for that. And they're yep. like, that's too much. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you liked it. You should put a test on it. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. We just named the episode. Uh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, there is that distinction between like testing is very important. Testing to prevent regressions and constrain the system. But test-driven development is a practice. It's a yeah. very... It's a, almost religious, right? It is. That's like, it is. <laughs> Which gets uh, into the judgment and the does. pride and, you know, the things that people have about it. And, yeah. you know, the other thing about, like, religious stuff, though, is it is a practice, right? Like, yeah. they're very observant and modest people, too. <laughs> yeah. There's the aspects of ritual and consistency, but ritual and consistency allow you to not think sometimes. How do I yeah. do this? I show up. I think about the way the world should be. 
I write a test that constrains the world to be that way, and then I follow the errors and do what they say. And The thing, though, that I just really love, and I'm not sure, it, you know, like we're doing like a lot of crud stuff with this particular team, and it just doesn't shine as much like the simplicity of like solutions that you can get to with TDD, mm-hmm. you know, like, because when you're thinking about back to those crazy algorithms, like, oh, my God, but this crazy thing might happen and that crazy thing. And like, and it becomes this nasty if else conditional thing. And when you just say like, okay, we're going to take each of these things I'm worried about one step at a time. Yep. And you'll find that there's like edge cases that you write a test and it's already passing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you don't need all that crazy stuff. And in fact, probably that stuff had bugs in it. Probably. That's where bugs hide. Yeah. This is true. The other aspect of TDD that is probably the most enjoyable aspect for me is when I'm done with a certain round of, okay, I've got my red, I've got my green, then I get to refactor. And when I feel confident in the tests and the sufficient coverage that it's saying everything that this class needs to do and testing that very rapidly, then I just go nuts. And I go like, oh, what about this? Could I do this? Oh, what if I extracted that out? Does this work? (laughs) Oh, that works. This is great. This is a better version of the code. I'm so happy now. Yeah. And I get to spend the time to make the small interfaces, make the code say in words what I would say to another human to describe what each little piece does. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. It is fun. It is fun. It's so fun. It's hard, too. Let's be clear. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Um, And when you're kind of implementing tests via TDD on a bunch of code that's gotten out of control, Mm -hmm. doesn't have enough tests, like the product's out of control, everything's out of control about it, that's hard because it really is a chicken and egg problem, right? Like, how do you get a test around something that's kind of untestable Mm -hmm. so that you can refactor it? Yep. My approach is always to start very far away, like write a test that I think is doing what mm-hmm. <laughs> the right thing, delete some code, see if it fails. <laughs> yep. And then go, okay, something something is tested mm-hmm. and then go from there. Like can I extract this whole blob of code somewhere else where I can move the test and dig in a little bit deeper, just like yep. taking apart the ball of mud. Taking apart the ball of mud. I don't know if your approach is similar, but in those cases, almost always what I'll do is start from the outside, start with the big happy path feature spec that says yeah. like, well, so we're a widget selling company. So as a user, I can show up, put a widget in my cart, buy a widget, get an email. Okay. Now we've constrained the system on the outermost layer and keep drilling in and keep trying to like wrap a smaller test around a smaller piece. But yeah, um, it's tedious. <laughs> TDD, yes. <laughs> well, actually, at that point, it's really not TDD because you're just no. trying to get coverage so that you can refactor without. Yeah. Trying to get to the, the land of blue, as it were. But uh, yeah. eventually, someday, then you maybe lay the foundation for it. I assume you've seen uh, Katrina Owen's therapeutic refactoring. Yeah. A lot of what I think in this space comes from that talk, which is one of the few talks that I've actually watched more than once, where like I think she tells a very important story and a very... like provides actionable advice throughout it but it also is one of the best performed conference talks that i've seen and it's just like it's just it's therapeutic makes you feel good yeah it's a therapeutic talk as well (laughs) a therapeutic topic and like let's take messy things and make them cleaner and make them more understandable and more manageable and And without risk with all this security like Mm. i think when i really like play up my refactoring tdd game the thing that i love is like radically reorganizing code while the tests pass Mm -hmm. with every step. And that is so hard that most developers I work with just don't want to even tackle it, especially Mm -hmm. when you're moving state, you know? 
and the state is connected and you're moving state from here to there. It's a super hard thing to move that gracefully. Yeah. But it's been an interesting pattern for me on the super micro level because it it mirrors the macro of a strangler pattern on a like a big decaying system. Strangler pattern. Yeah. You will have to explain this now. <laughs> so the strangler pattern is uh oh no, <laughs> this thing is out of control and kind of on a product level, although I've heard it mostly talked about by engineers, but mm. on a product level, we're going to pick pieces of it that are isolatable off and like build things on the side and move over to that mm-hmm. as quickly as possible. Now, if you have like a gigantic database, that's super hard because all the data is connected, right? Joins and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so like in practice, it's very the reason it feels like that state moving problem on the micro level is you kind of move over your read operations first. And so mm-hmm. in the case of most application, there's reports and, you know, like other kind of view only information and you can move that over and then you're exercising your new app. You create some kind of a what I call a front door, although other people call it lots of things. It can be like a routing system in your you know, your servers, or it can be a navigation so that you control like the entire messy world and mm-hmm. can separate people and move them to the right place. And then you just start moving over more and more stuff. As soon as you start like mutating data, you really have to grab like the whole mm-hmm. <laughs> chunk of it and like rip it out. But it, it's called the strangler pattern. And there is writing about it. Like, mm. I think uh, Fowler writes about Yeah, I was hoping we could provide a link to that and not just the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Martin Fowler wrote about it. And I think some other people did, too. Like, when I was at 18F, there were a lot of, like, kind of business people that had maybe a one-night fair with a Rails app. And they were like, I can solve anything. Mm-hmm. And so at some point, people came up with the concept just inside of 18F of encasement which they thought was like the strangler pattern. They were like, APIs will solve everything. Mm-hmm. So let's take our terrible database. We'll put an API around it. We'll mm-hmm. have the old apps talk to the API. We'll have the new apps talk to the API. And, um, and then change up the stuff underneath. Yeah. Right. Super not as effective as mm-hmm. the strangler pattern. Mostly because if you have technical debt, it goes all the way into the data. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, like you can foreign key constrate yourself to death really fast. And then, you know, like you've got to inject. Anything I've seen the opposite most of the time, really? which is lack of foreign key constraint yourself to death. And everything's like, well, that, that relationship doesn't exist. We deleted that a while ago. But interesting to hear the other side of that. Oh, yeah. Of- like if you add enough constraints, you have to put the entire production database in some form into the app in order to like mm-hmm. exercise your tests. Yes, and that is uh, really the opposite of unit tests, <laughs> you know? <That's> true. <laughs> and so, like, the thing that you get out of foreign key constraints is, like, developers don't do silly things. Mm-hmm. And the thing you lose with foreign key constraints is unit tests, like, unit style kind of database tests. Like, right. there's no way to, like, kind of just put in a bit of data. Yeah, if you're doing anything that... Typically, or often, I'll try and just not even touch the database when I'm down at true, like, model, not models, because those tend to be active record. And yeah, I'm going to go hang out in the database a little bit if I'm in active record land, because it's hard to not. But any of the, like, service objects or things like that, which that's not a real word, but let's pretend it is. Yeah. Uh, long history of the word service object being talked about on this podcast, which is fun, <laughs> uh, and attempts to define it. But anything like that, the the workers and the service objects and query objects and well, any of those other Ruby types. And they can yeah. be, like, super unit tested, but... If you're trying to encase a database and you're trying to write unit tests for your API Mm -hmm. or unit-ish tests, right, like at the database level and down, Mm -hmm. 
because those really aren't unit tests. But anyways, you need like some sense of like what's happening in that terrible like query land, and mm -hmm. am I using it right? Given that it is its own disaster, like. There's just no way. Mm. <laughs> Those foreign key constraints are the death of many encasement. Well, every encasement that I've tried to do. And it wasn't even a good idea. I mean, like the strangler pattern is really good because it's top down, right? Mm. Like it's at the product level down that you're mm. like switching things over. And that keeps you focused on user and value yep. <laughs> as opposed to like massive technology switches, which government loves to do. <laughs> but don't necessarily impact the end user of the product. Not in a good way. Much. Yeah. <laughs> Not in a good way. When I was at California, one of the last projects that I worked on, which I worked on for a while, was a new DMV application. So like everything was paper and it was like about four people that had to come into the office anyways, making that an electronic form. And I worked with incredible designers, incredible designers who like researched the heck out of everything in ways that I hadn't seen be so like fast and effective. Mm -hmm. And so lots of good things. But when we went to the field and talked to the technicians, they're like, oh, I heard they're doing a new application. And I'm confident it's going to screw up our life. And that's what we did. You know, mm -hmm. like it was a very polished application for the end user. Like my wife went in and, you know, filled out the application. She was like, it was great. But oh my God, I was at the office with an appointment for four hours because mm -hmm. they shuttled me here and there and everywhere. And the designers also told them that that was going to happen, that right. I needed to address this other thing. But that is the government pattern, right? Mm -hmm. It's like we make things worse, <laughs> IT makes things worse. Ugh. And IT is also just a funky phrase. Mm -hmm. Rough. <laughs> so don't, I wish I had any sort of adage or follow-up to that, but no, that uh, sounds accurate and rough. Yeah, I would like it to be different. And, um, you know, the good thing I can say is, like, the amazing designers at 18F mm -hmm. and also at California are still involved in civic tech. That's so good. They're, they're doing stuff. They're doing it mostly from, like, industry and vendors, which is a little bit of a safer place with a little bit more power. But they're still there. So there's hope. There is hope. Yeah. A glimmer of hope. Well, Kane, I think hope is probably a perfect note on which to end this. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 169. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.